Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. As I considered the snow about five o'clock this morning, I said, you know, we don't live in Florida. We do live in New Jersey. So, you know, a little bit of that doesn't really dissuade us. And I'm really glad to see all of you took the time, clean off your cars and made it out because we only get this opportunity on a Sunday once a week. Amen. And I'm glad to see you all. This morning, I want to share with you from God's Word in Acts chapter 21. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 15. And as we do, I want to make a statement, and I'm not trying to be critical, just an observation, that over the centuries, there has been a monumental failure on the part of church leadership to trust God. Now, that's a, an indictment, but it's, it's a true statement. Let's be honest. As we look at the way God has moved in the church over the centuries, many times, unfortunately, too many times, the leadership within the church at large has taken it upon themselves to try to solve problems. And that's quite human. It's quite natural. It's just not the way we are led by the Spirit to solve problems. Any time that leadership fails to trust God in the body of Christ, the body of Christ suffers. Being a leader in the church, it is very challenging at times to trust God, because you're not only trusting God for yourself, you're trusting God for others and for the entire church. And as I have learned over the last few decades, it is real easy to start to think in your mind that somehow you, as a pastor or a church leader, are responsible in a way that only God can be responsible for the body of Christ. So this morning, we're going to see the heart of Paul, who had a heart for peace in the body of Christ, but we're all going to see that the leadership in Jerusalem at this time had perhaps had a little bit of a challenge in terms of trusting God. I have to say that over the last couple years, specifically the last two years, The failure on the part of church leaders to trust God through this pandemic has ruined churches. And I'm not being critical of any one church or any movement of the Spirit, but I'm saying this, it is so difficult and challenging during trials, and especially over the last two years, to trust God. But that is exactly what we've been striving to do at Calvary Chapel. I'm sure not perfectly. But the one thing I can tell you, no matter how bad things get, you can't stop trusting God with this church as a leader. So as we open up the Word today, we're not looking to be critical. We're just looking to observe the things that took place in the first century and recognize that throughout the centuries, leaders in the church have struggled to believe that God is capable of taking care of all of the issues we face By the way, if you're not a church leader, you still have to trust God with your own life, with your own ministry, with your family, with your job. And we've all been challenged at that level. And the people who are experiencing the most peace at this moment in our world are those that are trusting God. Lord Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us. Our faith fails. As that man said to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. We all fail to believe at times that you can meet all of our needs, that you can solve all of the problems and help us to face all of the challenges that life inevitably brings. 
Sometimes in our pride, in our arrogance, we believe that we need to help out. Lord, we know that we are lost without you. As church leaders, we don't have a clue. We don't have it all figured out. I certainly don't. None of us really know what to do. That's why we come to you and ask you to guide us and to lead us. Lord, as we trust in the Lord, we know that you are going to make our path straight. You're going to direct us and lead us as we acknowledge you with our lives. And so that is our prayer, and it's what we ask for as we study your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in Acts chapter 21 and verse 15... We start by seeing that Paul and his team traveled from Caesarea, where we left off last week. They were in the city of Caesarea. They travel to Jerusalem in Judea. It says here in verse 15, after this, Luke writes, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Now, by the way, you always go up to Jerusalem, regardless of what direction you're traveling, east, west, north, south, because from an elevation standpoint, Jerusalem is much higher than the surrounding area. So when they say we went up to Jerusalem, there's a reason why they speak in that way. It's a climb. So, after this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. And he was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So they've now finally, in the last leg of their journey, which started way back in In Ephesus, really, when Paul first declared his intention to return to Jerusalem, he has been traveling throughout modern Turkey, we call it Asia Minor in the Bible, but into northern Greece, southern Greece, back to northern Greece, back into Asia Minor, and then along the coast to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the area of what is Lebanon slash Syria, making his way down. And now in Caesarea, he travels the last leg of their journey by foot to the city of Jerusalem. Accompanied by some of the disciples, there will be a number of reasons for that, not the least of which uh, to help them along the way and to guide them and direct them and to provide lodging. For we see that the disciples brought them to the home of a man named Nason, to stay with him while they were in the city. This was the place that Paul and his team were given to stay in while Paul connected with the church or reconnected with the church in Jerusalem. Now, Nason was from an island, the island of Cyprus, off the coast of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. This is uh, an island we've talked about before. Barnabas was from Cyprus. Uh, But Nason, his name means remembering, which doesn't surprise me because of the root of that word. It's the same root that's used in mnemonic, like a memory. And uh, so his name means remembering. And I think that that's for a reason. Uh, He had become a disciple in the very beginning of the church, probably even sooner than Paul. And so Paul finds himself with his team in the home of a man who could remember the entire history of the church who could go back and remember what it was like when the church first started. And this would have given Paul an opportunity to reflect on 20 to 30 years of ministry and the Lord's work in the early church. Now, the Lord will often, I believe, bring us to a house of remembering. A house of remembering. One of the ways you learn to trust God is by remembering God's faithfulness in your life. Can I hear an amen? People journal. Some people that don't have a very good memory find that very helpful. I'm fortunate I can usually remember things, but you know, it's interesting how I choose to forget. 
how God is so faithful in my life and how I can focus on the negative and I can focus on, on those things that maybe uh, take away my peace when I should be focusing in on how faithful God has been over the years. And as I go back probably about the same length of time as Nason, 30, 35 years in my life, as I look back, I can tell you some, something unequivocally. I can tell you God has always been faithful to me. Has he always done everything I wanted him to do the way I wanted him to do it? Certainly not. Have things always been easy? Absolutely not. Have there been times where my faith has failed and I doubted and I found it difficult to trust God? Absolutely. And that was just last week. So let's be honest with ourselves. We struggle. But when we take the time like Mnason, who could remember, when we take the time to remember how good God is, we find it possible, through the power of the Spirit, to trust God. Amen? So if you're having a hard time right now, and I think we kind of all are. I don't know anyone who's not having a hard time in some way. If you are, I want you to be encouraged to remember Remember, maybe you've only been walking with the Lord for a few months, but you can remember what your life was like before and what your life is like now. You can remember the times that God has been so faithful to you. And I believe that Paul was given this wonderful opportunity to reminisce so he could remember. Because listen, brothers and sisters, this is especially true shortly before we go through difficult times. Before we are led by the Lord to experience challenges, I think God will give us that opportunity and strengthen us by remembering how good he is. So who knows what the future holds for us in our nation? Right now, there are a lot of people looking at their watch, waiting for something to happen in Europe or in the South China Sea or in the Middle East. And you know what? That's fine. But you know what I remember? God has always been faithful to us. And then we read in verse 17, that when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers greeted us warmly. Now, there's something about that. There's something about that that is both supernatural and natural, or supernaturally natural. It is so true that when you walk into a body of believers like our fellowship today, and you're greeted warmly, there's something about that. I can't put my finger on it. I can't weigh it out and put it in a calculation. But I can tell you that that increases my faith in God. It's almost as if, and and dare I say this, that Jesus inhabits the praises of his people. We know he does, of course. It's almost as if God is in the midst of his people. It's almost as if that promise he said, where two or three are gathered in the midst, I am there. See, this is the part we forget. And why the devil did his best over the last two years to prevent us from coming together in fellowship. Because when we are gathered... In this way, we experience God in a way you can't online and you can't in any other way other than fellowship. It may seem passe. I've read articles that say the church has to get with the program of the, the digital age and start to think in terms of believers gathering online. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. There is certainly nothing wrong with watching a service online. I'm not saying there's something wrong with that. I've been listening to teaching tapes for 35 years. I've been listening to CDs, watching videos. I go on to YouTube as well, but here's the thing. You can't experience that where two or three are gathered unless you're here. Which is precisely why the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 24 said, Don't forsake the gathering of yourselves, as some are in the habit of doing. I'm preaching to the choir. 
But for those who may listen to this message online or are hesitant about coming out, and there are some, not many, but there are some, or those that are wondering, should the church in this crazy day and age be gathering? Should we be more responsible to not gather? I got news for you. You need to trust God. Here at Calvary Chapel, we have been trusting God. Not because we're so smart. Not because we had hand sanitizer in the back. But because we trusted God, I want to praise God. I want to take no credit for this whatsoever. God has protected us through this pandemic. There have been no super spreader events. Many of you have become ill and you got better. And by the way, that used to happen all the time anyway. And I don't mean to minimize the seriousness of the COVID infection in certain people. I understand that. I appreciate that. I'm not taking away from that. But my goodness, even the CDC's told us all that nonsense didn't make a hill of beans worth of difference. You know that, right? Oh, we got to follow the science until the science says, oh, by the way, none of, everything we did the last two years really didn't make much of a difference at all. I could have told you that two years ago. Actually, I think I did, but we'll move on. I don't want to do it, and I told you so. But anyway, they were greeted warmly. Listen, I, I, I love sending emails and texts and speaking to some of you on the phone, but that is not being greeted warmly. Some of you came in today, and I was at the back, and you hugged me, and I said, I'll take every hug you want to send my way. I always hesitate a little, because some people are not comfortable hugging at this point, but Listen, that's a warm greeting. When you walk in here, especially on a morning like this, the one thing you should know is that you're loved by God and by us. Paul has had an opportunity to remember God's faithfulness and be greeted warmly. These are not just things that happened along the way. These are opportunities for Paul to trust God. Okay. So then we get into verses 18 through 19, and here's what happens. It's one of the reasons Paul is there. It says in verse 18, The next day, Paul and the rest of us, Luke writes, went to see James, and all the elders were present, and Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. This is really one of the main reasons why Paul has gone to Jerusalem. After his missions journeys, he would travel back to Jerusalem, to report in with the church, the Jewish church in that city. Remember that the Jews had become Christians. Many thousands of Jews had become Christians. Many of them were dispersed throughout the Roman world, but most of them were gathered in Jerusalem. Now, Paul and his ministry team had been ministering to Gentiles as well as Jews. And so primarily, Paul spent a lot of time with Gentiles, but he is a Jew. He is a former Pharisee, a rabbi. And so Paul really does understand both worlds. He lives in both worlds. But he comes back to the Jewish church, and he begins to report all that God has been doing. Now, James, who's mentioned there, was the presiding leader among the church elders. For whatever reason, James, the brother of our Lord, the son of Joseph and Mary. James was the leader of the Jewish church. We talked a lot about James when we studied the book of James. But this is James, the Lord's brother. It's not one of the original 12. And I think a lot of people have watched The Chosen, so they know that there were two James. If you didn't know this from your Bible, a lot of people have been watching that series, which is a very good series. And in that series, there's a big James and a little James. Well, this is neither of that. Okay, this is James, the brother of our Lord. He didn't even become a Christian until after the Lord died and rose again. So that's an interesting uh, place that he holds in the early church. 
He was one of the three pillars within the early church. The other two, of course, Peter and John. And apparently they're all gathered there. In fact, Paul had met with James on two occasions in the past. Back in 40 AD, when he met with the, when James met with the recently converted Saul of Tarsus. And, and by the way, at that point, the idea is let's get this guy out of the city as quickly as possible. Ten years later, in 50 AD, Paul met with the Jerusalem Council regarding Gentile converts because there were some Jews that thought that Gentiles needed to become Christians by becoming Jews first. And, and they needed to correct that, and James was on board. There was no problem there, but that was the next time they met. And in fact, Paul may have met with James on two other occasions in the past, one when he delivered the gifts to the elders in Jerusalem in 44 AD, and in 52 AD when he visited Jerusalem after his second missionary journey. So by, certainly, this is not the first time that Paul has met with James or the elders. That's the point I'm trying to make. So Paul and his team, they meet with James, and the whole point is to do what we call a missions report. Now, you've seen this before. Most recently, Heather came up and gave us a report on the mission to Lebanon. And Pastor Joe will often come up here, and Oscar's come up, and others have come up to do missions to report in and let us know how God has worked among the people that they're called to minister to. And that's a good thing. Well, that's exactly what this is. By the way, if you're keeping track... This is in 58 AD. So 58 AD, Paul finds himself back in Jerusalem, reporting to them the details, <coughs> excuse me, of their ministry over the past several years. In fact, Paul had last visited Jerusalem about six years prior. So it's been a while. It's been quite a while uh, since he returned to Jerusalem or to his home church in Antioch in Syria. So all of that's taking place. But I want you to note that he gave all the glory to God, amen, for his successful ministry among the Gentiles. I'm going to read it again because it's important. Pronouns actually are important, and they should be used properly. I just can't leave that one alone. It says, Paul greeted them in verse 19 and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now look, it was Paul's ministry but it was God's ministry. Paul didn't do the work. God did the work. One of the ways you will learn to trust God is to remember. One of the ways you will learn to trust God is by being in fellowship. Another way you will learn to trust God is by recognizing that God is the one working through you, not you. You know, it's so tempting. And, and listen, as men, certainly women as well, but men especially, it is very easy, and it's one of the steps that lead you to not trusting God, to start to think that you or I, that we had anything to do with the work of God. See, this is the problem. I'm sharing as a pastor, I'm telling you, when God begins to work and ministries start to grow and a church begins to grow, it is so easy. In fact, it's almost impossible not to start to think that you had anything to do with it. It's, it, it. There's just this natural human tendency to think that the ministry depends on you. I, I can share on behalf of our pastors here, whether we're talking about missions ministry or outreach ministry with Pastor Joe, Pastor Kurt, Pastor Sal, myself, the children's ministry with Pastor Raj, our worship ministry, Pastor Russ and the team, I can tell you unequivocally, that all of them, I know these men well, they know they have nothing to do with the work of God. God is the one working. In fact, they count on that. They depend on it. But the minute you start to think, you know, 
Maybe it was me going to school that has something to do with why this ministry is thriving. Or maybe it was all the time I spent in God's word. Maybe I have just a little bit, but I want to share something with you. God will never share his glory with another. He doesn't share glory. So best you get this into your brain right now. Give all the glory to God. One of my favorite moments of meeting Pastor Chuck years ago is when you would go to Chuck and you would see him at a conference and you'd approach Pastor Chuck Smith and you'd say, Oh, Pastor Chuck, you've been such a blessing in my life. I've been listening to your tapes. Uh, you know, you're a little, it's kind of like a, a, you're a little starstruck when you meet Pastor Chuck. And he's with the Lord now. But, oh, you, I've been listening to your tapes since the mid-80s. You've been such a blessing. Thank you so much. You go through this whole thing, which I'm sure he was very uncomfortable hearing. He turned, and he always did. He did it to me. He did it to others. To God be the glory. And I've tried to follow that example. To God be the glory. Amen? Just say it. Even if you're trying, like your flesh is arguing there, just say it. To God be the glory. Say it with me. To God be the glory. Because that'll set your heart right and your spirit right. And so that's the the approach Paul has taken. Listen, Paul could have came in there and said, Hey guys, nice job planting one church. I planted about 20. Or 40. Or 50. Who knows how many, right? But that's not the heart of Paul. That's not who he is, thank God. But there are some in church leadership that will let you know exactly how many churches they planted, how many people attend their church, how many books they've written, and how many years they've been doing ministry. So let's be careful. To God be all the glory. Amen? Okay, so here's an interesting moment. Because I'm going to tell you something that I'm going to confess something. I have been severely disappointed with church leadership, even with... Calvary Chapel, maybe especially with Calvary Chapel over the last five to six years. There have been a lot of moral failures on the part of ministers who I respected and thought highly of. There have been a lot of mistakes made in ministry because they're not trusting God. There have been a lot of schisms. And quite frankly, I've kind of just sort of, I wouldn't say divorced myself, but I have definitely taken a step back from Calvary Chapel at large and just focused on this wonderful congregation that God has given me the privilege to minister to and be a part of. And as we approach, there's a conference this this year in Philadelphia, and I'm going, it's been many years since I've gone to any conferences, and I really feel the Lord has led me to sort of reconnect with some of these pastors. There are many, many good pastors in Calvary Chapel. There are many good ministries in Calvary Chapel, but unfortunately, over the last few years, there have been many that have not been so good, and really embarrassed us, really embarrassed me personally. And I've had a little bit of an attitude about it. I'm not going to lie. I've been like, I don't want anything to do with these people. I go to a conference. I get ministered to by some guy who's up there. I think so highly of him. Then I find out he's having an affair. That kind of leaves a mark. And I've been disappointed. I'm going to just admit that. But here's the thing. You still need to trust God when your leaders disappoint you. I've been very disappointed in some leaders over the last two years, closing their churches without cause and running for the hills and imposing restrictions on their people that are ridiculous. But, hey, listen, that's their business. But moral failure, these types of things really hurt me as a pastor. So I've taken a deep breath, and we're going to go to the conference again this year. I'm looking forward to reconnecting with people. I need to get rid of my bad attitude. I need to be more conciliatory. And I need to stop having a bad attitude about it. But I can't put my trust, and this is the thing God taught me. 
cannot not only not trust myself, I can't put my trust in men or women. I can't put my trust in the leadership of any church, Calvary Chapel or any other church. And by the way, you can trust that I'll do my best, but you can't really put your trust in me because I'm only a man who's flawed in making mistakes. And I'm not asking you to do that. I'm, I'm asking you to put your trust in God. That's all I can do. My best and ask you to trust God. So as I've confessed that, I feel kind of good because I got that out. Because I, I've been kind of silent about that, but it, it, some of the leaders know. I, I've been very disappointed. But I'm going to get over it, and I'm going to trust God. And this is what Paul had to do, because he gets to Jerusalem, and, and one of the most awful things happens, he finds that the leaders are really nervous and panicky. And some of the decisions they make show that they weren't trusting God, and the outcome clearly shows that they weren't trusting God. In fact, they only made things worse, as we'll see next week. But for now, let's look at verses 20 through 24. In verse 20, it says that when the elders heard this, that is the report, the wonderful missions report from Paul and his team, they praised God, and then they said to Paul. So it's good that they praised God, but then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? Very interesting question. What shall we do? Now, I've given you this answer, and I want you to answer it for me. If I were to ask you the question, and we're facing a problem... I hope you haven't tuned me out. I hope you took notes or you were at least listening. What shall we do? Two words. Amen. Trust God. That's the answer to that question. But look what happens. What shall we do? They will certainly hear, that is these legalistic Jews, that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us. Who have made a vow, this is called the vow of the Nazarite, we'll talk about it more this morning, take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved, and then everyone or everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So this is interesting. You know, it just sounds so political, doesn't it? Come on, let's be honest. And at this moment, I'm disappointed in James. I'm disappointed in the church leadership because I understand their heart. They want to make peace. But when you ask a question, what shall we do? And any answer you come up with is anything other than trust God. You're going to get yourself into trouble. You're going to cause problems that God would have solved if you just trusted him. I know I'm being tough on these guys. But you know what? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. And when someone makes a decision to close a church out of an abundance of caution, and then they open up and nobody comes back, maybe you made the wrong decision. Just maybe. Maybe. So when I see bad decisions, I withhold judgment until I see the outcome of that decision. And then I can honestly say, well, maybe you should have trusted God. Because the end result of that bad decision doesn't seem to help the body of Christ. It seems to have hurt the body of Christ. 
Now listen, I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm just looking at the, by observation, looking at some of the decisions I've seen made within spiritual leadership over many years, not just the last two years. And I can tell you, some of the decisions that leaders have made just to get more people in the door are really bad decisions. Really bad. And I could go on all day about that, but that's not why we're here. But we're here in the power of the Spirit, remembering God's faithfulness, greeting each other warmly. We are here to trust God, and we're asking, what shall we do? And we're answering that question from God's Word. We're trusting God. And that is exactly what we're doing, and we're giving God all the glory. So here's what happens. James and the elders of the church were concerned, and rightfully so. I, I don't, don't deny that they should have had some legitimate concerns. Their concern was that Paul's critics would start trouble in Jerusalem. So what they're trying to do is mitigate that. They're trying to deal with it. They're trying to come up with a human solution, a religious solution to a spiritual problem. By the way, religion has never solved one spiritual problem in all of mankind's history. Ever. Ever. Because only God can truly solve these problems. And religion, by contrast with a relationship with God, is man's feeble attempt to please God. And we know that without what? It is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I would argue that faith in God, trust in God, trumps religion. Okay, so let's see what it says. They had serious concerns. They had serious concerns that the legalistic members of the church would not accept Paul. By the way, anytime you make a decision in church leadership that caters to a few people who are troublemakers, or their doctrine's a little off, or they're contentious, you've already lost. If you try to make decisions that please everyone, and especially discontent or malcontent minorities, you are going to fail. A.W. Tozer said it best. He said, I realize I can't please everybody, so I don't try to please anybody. Here's the thing. These were serious concerns. Yes, thousands of Jews had become disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem. And all of these Jews were passionate about keeping the law of Moses. Now, what's Paul's ministry? To let people know they don't need to keep the law of Moses in order to be accepted by God. So there's a conflict here. Now, now, Paul never, we'll see, Paul never said you can't keep the law. He just wanted to make it clear that you didn't have to. The Gentiles certainly didn't, and Jews, like himself, could choose not to keep the law as a means of righteousness before God, because the law couldn't save them. I don't need to read the entire New Testament. You guys know this. So imagine the situation. These were some of the people that hated Paul, were critics. These were people that caused him all kinds of problems. Paul wants peace. He's tried. But every time he goes into a synagogue, the Jews and then those Jewish Christians will often cause problems for him. And now the leadership in Jerusalem, James, Peter, John, and many others, have come up with a solution. He needs to follow through on this vow. And, and do a few things to appease these individuals. By the way, I hate that word, appease. Appeasement never accomplishes anything. I was just watching a historical drama last night about Neville Chamberlain and the Sudendenland. And if you're familiar with history, you know that Hitler basically ran roughshod over Europe because the Western powers tried to appease him. Appeasement never works. 
Well, anyway, I know I'm being hypercritical this morning, but this is the kind of thing we need to be aware of so we don't repeat these mistakes. Now, the Jews, they had been told that Paul taught Jewish disciples among the Gentiles to break the law. He never did that. He never did that. But that's, that was the rumor that's going around. By the way, another thing A.W. Tozer said, he said, I never defend myself. I like that. I never defend myself. He had been accused of telling the Jews not to circumcise their sons or keep their customs. That wasn't true. He told the Gentiles they didn't need to do that. He had only taught that Jews that were in Christ were not obligated to keep the law. But that was enough to cause problems. So they were willing, these leaders in Jerusalem were willing to placate or appease these Jewish disciples rather than challenge them with the truth. You see, when you choose to appease instead of tell the truth, you're already on very shaky ground. One of the things that will set you free, we know, is the truth. And many times as Christians, we're afraid to tell the truth. Now, of course, we tell the truth in love. But telling people the truth, like, for example, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, you're going to hell. Oh, pastor, what an unloving thing to say. You know, it's actually more unloving for me not to tell you that. You need Christ, amen? He died for your sins. He rose again on the third day. Because you're a sinner, you need a Savior, and He is the Savior of your soul. You need to give your life to Him. He is and needs to be your Lord and Savior if you're going to spend all eternity with Him. Amen? That's the truth. Oh, how could you say that? That's so unloving. Oh, there's two genders, only two. Oh my gosh, you can't say that. Don't you know there's 671? I'm sorry, last time I checked, the truth is the truth. Oh, are we supposed to follow the science or not? So here's the thing. I think we need, as the body of Christ, to start to recognize that appeasing people and placating people is not what we're called to do. We're called to preach the truth, to teach the truth about life, but especially about who God is and his word. And that's exactly what Paul was doing, and they didn't like it. And so these guys decide there's a better solution. And it isn't a better solution, and it didn't work, as we'll see next week. Well, rather than acknowledging that the Holy Spirit was working through Paul, they panicked. They panicked. Clearly, they were more comfortable with controlling a situation than with trusting God. See, fundamentally, the reason church leaders choose not to trust God is because they would rather control the situation themselves. When you fail to trust God, it's because you are more comfortable controlling the situation yourself. You would rather be at the wheel than surrender the driver's seat to your Savior, to your Lord. That's the reason you can't trust God. I know we all struggle with it. I do too. But they had become accustomed, these leaders had become accustomed to making accommodations in order to maintain peace. Again, appeasement doesn't work. They were satisfied to remain, and excuse me for saying it this way, moral cowards in the face of this opportunity to champion God's grace. And yes, I'm disappointed in them. They're good men. They're godly men. God was working through these men. But they failed to trust God. So, one of the things you need to be aware of is Paul had oftentimes, including this time, brought financial resources to the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was often poor for a number of reasons, not the least of which 
was that as a community, they were ostracized by the other Jews. So if you owned a shop in Jerusalem, none of the Jews who weren't Christians would shop at your shop. So the church as a, as a, as a church was, was kind of poor, whereas the Gentile churches were flushed with cash. So what Paul would do, and he writes about this, and he talks about it frequently, especially in 2 Corinthians, he goes and receives an offering for the church in Jerusalem. So he shows up with an offering, okay? But I have to say this, Paul was good enough to support them financially, but apparently he was unworthy of their moral support, which is really, really disappointing. So they devised a plan. Here's the plan. The plan to prove to these disciples that Paul hadn't taught the Jews to break the law, this is the plan. They took control instead of submitting to the leading of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the one significant thing you can do as a leader is submit control of your life and your ministry to the Holy Spirit. If you do that, you'll be fine. You might make mistakes, but it'll always be okay because God will be in control. Amen? Well, they weren't so keen on that. They asked Paul to join four others in the Nazarite purification rites through the temple, which in and of itself isn't all that offensive. It's just why. It's why they suggested Paul do this. They wanted, think about it, the champion of grace to perform an act of legalistic ritual. Okay. They wanted the benefactor of the Jewish church to pay their expenses. Paul once again gets the bill. They wanted the bold defender of freedom in Christ to prove his devotion to God's law. It's almost insulting if you ask me. They wanted the apostle to the Gentiles to remember that he was not a Gentile. Think about that. Process that. They wanted Paul to prove to these Jews that he was still living in obedience to the law. Now, to Paul's credit, he he didn't take offense, and we'll see in a minute. He did everything he could, short of violating his conscience, to try to make peace. He did. But there's a difference between a peace and appeasement. All right, let's continue. A couple of things I want to say. I don't want to get into a whole teaching on the vow of the Nazarite. But in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord gave Moses specific instructions for Israelites that desired to make a vow of separation. The nice thing about the law of the Nazarite, it was voluntary. It actually wasn't a requirement under the law. You didn't have to do this. This was something you could choose to do. So, in a sense, there's really nothing wrong with Paul doing this. It's an act of devotion. It's kind of like a love offering. You don't have to do it, but you can, and you're blessed if you do. It's like serving others. There are things you can do that are not under the law that please God and and surrender your heart to God. So I don't want you to think I'm saying there's anything wrong with the vow of a Nazarite or that doing this in some way violated Paul's conscience. It did not. However, the reasons for doing it is my issue, which we've already talked about. So the Lord gave instructions for men and women regarding the vow of the Nazarite. Now, it means to be set apart. So think of it as a vow of consecration. The vow of the Nazarite was a voluntary commitment to live a separated life unto the Lord. Here's how you did that. You abstained from grapes or anything made from grapes or fermented drinks. You let your hair grow and... You remain ceremonially clean while separated unto the Lord. So you kind of just follow the ceremonial law for that period of time, kind of like a fast or a Lenten fast. It's just a time for you to surrender your heart. It's voluntary. You don't have to do this. 
And then there were instructions for what happens if you unintentionally break the vow, and that's listed in number six. But I want to just mention this. The vow of the Nazarite was fulfilled when the days of separation were completed. So you decided how long that vow was going to last. So you could say seven days, 14 days. Many times people would do that leading up to a feast or for some special event. Here's what they had to do. They had to offer several sacrificial offerings at the tabernacle. There was a year-old male lamb and a year-old ewe lamb for a burnt and a sin offering. Now, here's the important thing to recognize. Paul would have never, never, never offered a sin offering. I can tell you that unequivocally. You can't read his epistles and, and suggest such a thing. So he's not interested in that. He's not doing it for the reasons of sin. He's doing it for the reasons of consecration and to make peace. Also a ram for a fellowship offering with grain and drink offerings, which Paul would have had no problem doing. But they had to shave their head and burn the hair that had been dedicated to the Lord. They had to present their offerings to the Lord and then give them to the priest. So it was a very religious thing, but again, it was voluntary. Now, they were expected to fulfill this voluntary commitment to live a separated life to the Lord. There are two individuals, maybe even three, who were called by the Lord to be Nazarites from birth. The first would be, of course, Samson. He was called to live a separated life. He didn't do so well, did he? But he was called to live a separated life as a Nazarite. So was Samuel, by the way. And as far as we can tell, Samuel did. Uh, Also, it's possible, although we can't say it definitely, that John the Baptist may have been a Nazarite from birth as well. In fact, it's likely. These were men that made a decision to follow God according to his will and be separated to God. So it's not the end of the world. But brothers and sisters, look at verse 25. It says, as for the Gentile believers, it says, we have written to them, our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. It's important. They had already had a conference years earlier. In fact, it was eight years earlier about this whole topic of Gentiles and whether or not they had to follow the law. And apparently the compromise had been worked out. The compromise was this. We Jews are not going to enforce the Gentiles to live as we do. However, if you're Jewish and you're a Christian, we want you to, to live that way. And that was the compromise. I don't know that that was a really appropriate compromise. It just that was the compromise that was made. And that's why they want Paul to do this thing. So, James had been especially sympathetic to the religious needs of these newly converted Gentiles. It's not all bad news. James was a good guy. He was a very Jewish person, but it, when it re- came to the Gentiles, he was very sympathetic, and he didn't agree that they should have to become Jews in order to become Christians. In fact, they had written to the Gentiles, refusing to burden them with keeping the law of Moses. And, and not everyone liked James's decision to do that, but he did. And I thought it was a pretty good decision as far as the Gentiles are concerned. Now, they only encouraged the Gentiles to practice what you could call a healthy spiritual lifestyle apart from the law. They didn't have to keep the law, but there were certain things that if the Gentiles did these things, they would be able to have fellowship with the Jews. If they didn't, then the Jews were kind of required to separate themselves from the other Gentiles. So for the sake of peace, for the sake of community, for the sake of the church, the early church, They wanted these Gentiles to just do a couple things. And when you think about it, it's really not asking a lot. And here's why. All of the restrictions are associated with pagan idolatry. 
And clearly anyone would agree that that's not something any Gentile should be involved in. But they were coming out of a culture that embraced pagan idolatry. For example, food sacrificed to idols. Of course, that makes sense, right? The blood of animals. Well, there was a kosher way to prepare meat. And if you invited a Jew to your home and it wasn't kosher meat, they couldn't eat with you. In fact, they probably wouldn't walk in the house, right? So don't do that. Uh, abstain from the meat of strangled animals, which would mean that the blood wasn't drained. And again, the Jews couldn't eat anything with blood in it. And by the way, a strangled animal, that was part of their pagan rites. They would strangle an animal and then eat the meat. It's kind of gruesome. Uh, then you also had, of course, sexual immorality. Who would argue with that? And these were all the things that were a part of pagan idolatry. So honestly, I think that was a good decision. But he encouraged them to live lives that were separate from the world and its culture. I think that's a great encouragement today. This allowed the Jews to freely associate with them without violating their conscience. And it was especially important now that they were saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important to recognize that none of these decisions were meant to hinder the gospel of grace. They were simply meant to bring unity. So with that as a backdrop, how does Paul respond to this decision on the part of the leaders? How does he respond to their request? Which he could have been insulted. He could have walked the other way. He could have said, forget you guys. No, not at all. In fact, look at verse 26. It says, the next day... Paul took the men and purified himself along with them, and then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end, and the offering would be made for each of them. So to Paul's credit, not the best situation, without violating his conscience, he did what was necessary to bring peace, at least to try, to bring peace between him and the leadership the church in Jerusalem. He was submitting to his authority, even when his authority was wrong. Because what they were asking him to do wasn't sin, it just wasn't wise. It wasn't spirit-led, but it wasn't a violation of his conscience either. So Paul willingly forfeited his own personal freedom in Christ for the sake of these Jewish disciples. And we've done a lot of that over the last two years as well making decisions sometimes to do things or wear things or act in ways that we were uncomfortable with just to make others whom we love feel comfortable. And there's nothing wrong with that. There really isn't. So he could have defended himself. He could have won the theological argument. He was right, but he would have lost their fellowship. He humbly submitted to the elders' plan to maintain peace in the church, and he joined these four men in their Nazarite purification rites, even paid their expenses... He pledged to make the required offerings at the temple for himself and for each of these four men. You cannot criticize the heart of Paul. You cannot. He would have been within his rights to argue, but he didn't. Now, he was able to make peace and consecration offerings in good conscience, though I tell you he would have never made a sin offering. He would have never made a sin or a trespass offering now that he was in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, we've talked about the failure of leadership to trust God, but there are moments when we have to trust God, and while we're not looking to appease people, we may sacrifice our freedom, we may choose to make decisions that affect us in a way that we may perceive as negatively, as long as it doesn't violate the Scripture and our conscience, 
it is better to approach it the way Paul did than to become contentious, offensive, and sacrifice fellowship. Listen, you need to be led of the Spirit. There is a balance here. There is a line. And you need to pray what that line is. I mean, if they ask you to to bow to the beast and receive the mark of the beast, I hope you know you don't do that. Oh, but everyone else in the church is doing it. Well, it doesn't matter. That's a deal breaker. There are things that you can make a choice to do that really are not spiritual at all. And there are things that you should never choose to do. How on earth will we know? What will we do? Lord, Heavenly Father, help us to trust you. Help us to know that we can trust that you have a wonderful solution. You always do. May we never get in the way of all that you're doing. And when confronted with a choice to trust you or to come up with some clever plan, may we first of all recognize that you've always been faithful to us. May we remember that. May we trust you. May we give you all the glory. May we never sacrifice fellowship or the teaching of your word for the sake of alleged peace. But Lord, where it's possible, give us the ability and the will to make peace with our brothers and sisters, to be able to bring fellowship and harmony where we can, even if we have to give up some of our own rights to do that, Lord. But lead us and direct us, and may we never cease from trusting you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.